0: Hi everyone, welcome to Lab Medicine's podcast series. My name is Kelly Swales, and I'm the digital managing editor for the journal. Joining me today are Drs. White, DeVille, and Ware. Dr. White and Dr. Ware are assistant professors with the Department of Pathology at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Dr. DeVille is an associate professor with the Department of Radiation Oncology and Molecular Radiation Services at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. They recently published a paper in the American Journal for Clinical Pathology titled Current and Historical Trends in Diversity by Race, Ethnicity, Ethnicity and Sex Within the U.S. Pathology Physician Workforce.
1: And they joined us today to talk a
0: little bit about it.
1: So thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having us, Kylie. I really appreciate the opportunity. So let's talk a little bit
0: about about the about diversity and why it matters for pathologists and laboratory professionals.
2: Uh, so this is actually the Ve action certainly get started and. You know, I'm obviously not a pathologist. I'm a radiation oncologist, but uh, so I'll let my uh, colleagues hone in on pathology specifically. But when we look broadly at medicine and make the case for diversity, um, there's very clear um, arguments and um, the data behind the need to have a diverse physician workforce. And really that translates across all specialties. And so, if no specialty is kind of immune conversation. Um, there's landmark historical data that established the benefit to. Um, having a diverse workforce and, and, and actually the problems with not having a diverse workforce being uh, the health disparities and inequities that we see um, in a lot of disease outcomes and access to health care, um, and often just the poor outcomes that we may deal with in terms of morbidity and mortality of all diseases. Pathology certainly plays a critical role in that conversation, often being at the diagnostic forefront. Um, for um, all, all the medical issues that we may need to see and treat and manage downstream. And so um, having a workforce that's attuned to those issues and is, is certainly important. But more specifically, if we think about um, education, having a diverse workforce, um, it's been shown that institutions and organizations that have diverse medical schools, for example, that students feel more comfortable treating and seeing diverse patients um, if we think about those health care disparities that I mentioned, um, diverse physicians and scientists are more likely to pursue research you in health care dis- disparities, try to serve uh, and tackle those problems. Um, and really just in terms of service, in terms of underserved areas, and needing to see and treat patients uh, in places that are often underserved or have a lack of healthcare care resources, we see that minority providers are more likely to practice in those areas. Um, so there are numerous arguments ensuring that our workforce is diverse.
1: I think more specific, I think you know, Kurt, those are such great great points about, um, I mean, especially for education and the pipeline and um, looking at, you know, making sure that the, the faculty and the staff that our students engage with are representative of the student body um, or that the students find themselves represented, um, vice versa. Um, I think you know in terms of the lab's role um, you touched on a lot of important points, like patient-provider concordance, um, providing culturally appropriate and sensitive information. Um, I think for us in pathology, it gets a little difficult sometimes because, you know, in many time, many instances, where we're functioning in a silo for about, for lack of better words. But we don't see the patients, and so it can be really easy to forget about um, the health disparities uh, that our patients are suffering from, um, since we're not seeing the visible the visible impact of that. Um, but for us in pathology, I think there are many opportunities for us to. Uh, be mindful of biodiversity is still important for the reason that you mentioned for our trainees. Um, in terms of what we can do from a lab side of things, I mean, just looking as simple as, as our EGFR, where that's something that's coming into lay media now, where um, the estimated glomerular, glomerular filtration rate um, has historically been adjusted based off of race. So if you identify as black, um, automatically your EGFR calculation is adjusted. Um, You know, it's well recognized now that in 2020, uh, the black race is somewhat of a social construct where the U.S. African diaspora looks very different. Um, you, know, you have individuals that are of immediate African descent, um, individuals that are Afro-Caribbean, Afro-Canadian. So the U.S. African diaspora is very broad and um, is, is a social construct to some extent. So you really have to be mindful of race-based medicine. So for us in a lab perspective, um, we have the power to work with our clinical colleagues to um, look at some of these uh, race-adjusted algorithms um, and further, and actually, you know, properly validate them. Um, I think also we have the opportunity to um, work with you guys in terms of clinical research collaborations and, uh, you know, focusing on health disparities where appropriate. Um,
3: this is Alicia Ware here. With, uh, Dr. White and Dr. Bell's statements about diversity, and just to add that if you have a somewhat diverse workforce in pathology, although we do have great strides still ahead of us, but we do need to think about this and support those of us who are um, considered um, to be of diverse ethnic backgrounds um, as we go forward so that we can support the students that are coming into our field, the trainees, and other laboratory professionals. So, that we can work together, work as a team, and work as an interprofessional and interdisciplinary um, field in order to further diversity and inclusion in this initiatives within our field.
0: So, what prompted you guys to um, look at pathology specifically whenever you were working on your study?
1: So, I think, so for me, it was, um, you know, it was really. A study published by Kurt. So I'll let kind of Kurt kind of explain his past work, and then um, we can talk a little bit about how that kind of a, how that piqued our interest in pathology.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my my interest has stemmed from looking at workforce diversity as a means to address health equity. And I started in my own specialty of radiation oncology, you know, almost over a decade, about a decade ago, to actually. Um, as I finished residency training and was curious, you know, it felt like there was not a lot of diversity in the field and, and found that there was actually no publications that had looked specifically de- dedicated um, to, to my field um, and, and diversity. Um, and so that was kind of the initial spark. Um, and what that led, though, is as we started to look a little bit further beyond radiation and as we compared ourselves to other specialties, started to see different uh, tr- and interesting trends. Uh, where some specialties might be doing good, um, have a lot of diversity in one demographic. think we'll talk about. We saw that uh, with pathology and women, but they might not be doing so well um, in another, save for uh, underrepresented um, for groups that are historically uh, underrepresented um, racially and ethnically. Um, and so you start to see um, that it may not be as kind of one size fits all solutions Very often, when we talk talk and talked about diversity in the past, people were Kind of hyper focused on the pipeline and we'll say, well, you know, there's a pipeline problem and we know that there's just not enough uh, folks to go around, which is, you know, frankly, just just not the truth. We know that there is a pipeline pipeline problem. Um, and that's why you have the term underrepresented, you know, in medicine at certain racial and ethnic groups relative to their population in the US will be underrepresented in medicine. But even within the available cohort of of students that we have, medical students and trainees, you see that some specialties do very well with increasing diversity um, and others don't. Um, And so that's where um, it led to kind of an interesting segue when I met uh, Marissa to kind of examine certainly a lot of the work she was already doing, but be able to look at this data and trends over time to really tease out what's been going on to help set the stage of where we need to go, where are the areas that need the most improvement, where are we doing well, Um, and where are the areas that we need to focus even more on.
3: And similar to the fields of radiology, we have very limited data um, within pathology on diversity and on trends in diversity. Um, so it was a really great opportunity to work with Drs. White and DeVille um, on this project and to really delve deeply into what has been done in the past, more specifically and more often in other fields, because there is more available data um, for other fields other outside of pathology. Um, but unfortunately we don't have much to go on within our field of pathology but that was sort of our motivating force to really put our all into this into this research and into um into this cause so that we can hopefully shed some light on why diversity is so important in our field
1: and i I think finally i think um you know Dr. Ware and I have been involved with um, a funded uh, elective rotation for students underrepresented in medicine um, going back since 2016, and for us, we wanted to know if what we were doing was having an impact, and we wanted to know why it was important that we do what we are doing, Um, you know, doing kind of a needs assessment to understand, you know, what are our current needs in terms of diversity in pathology. And then on a personal level, um, for me, I've always been you know, deeply committed to diversity and inclusion. Um, you know, I, when, I was a, when I was in college, I wanted to go into primary care and then um, toggled into pathology. But you know, my heart, I still am committed to um, working towards mitigating health disparities. And you know, for me, this has been an opportunity to do that in terms of looking at um, how we can recruit and retain a diverse uh, pathologist workforce. And from a historical perspective, um, you know, I remember learning about the Flexner Report in undergrad, and I was shocked when I was a resident and learned that there is a whole chapter dedicated to uh, education of African Americans in the Flexner Report that I never even learned about when we covered it in college. And um, for me, that was really um, interesting. We could talk a lot about hidden curricula, um, and for for us, you know, as underrepresented minorities, you know that. That important part of the story was missing for me as a student when I was in college. um, Where, you know, in the Flexner Report, um, he suggested that um, only two of the, Seven African American medical schools should remain open uh, because they had adequate resources, but this was in the in this in the setting of um, overt racial exclusion in medical education. And so, what happened was you had five African American medical schools close without having assured um, admission of African Americans into predominantly white institutions. So, from the get-go. Um, you know, we had fewer African Americans going into medicine because there just weren't any opportunities. Um, so for me, that's this has uh, kind of been near and dear to my heart on multiple levels.
0: So what are the main takeaway points from, from your research? Like, what should I be taking away from this after I read this paper?
1: Yeah, I, I think that the, the big take home point is that Pathology has done a great job in terms of um, working towards achieving gender parity for women. Um, we have significantly more women compared to the total GM, in comparison to the total graduate medical education pool, and that includes other non-primary care specialties like ophthalmology, emergency medicine, anesthesiology. So we're doing great. Um, I think the Um, Opportunity for growth is that we still see that our female practicing pathologists and pathology faculty lag behind uh, female resident representation, so there's still opportunity for growth, but um, pathology has made significant strides. And so for me, that highlights that whatever we've done Worked to some extent in terms of getting our uh, female trainee numbers up, and so I think we can do the same, and we have the same abilities to do that for our UIM uh, resident and trainees. Um, so with that, I mean UIM trainees or underrepresented in medicine, as Kurt mentioned, um, our resident, fellow, and faculty numbers are gradually increasing, um, but not at a rate that we would like to see. Um, Interestingly, uh, we our numbers of UIM residents are not significantly different than what we see in the total GME pool, so that's a positive sign. Um, But we uh, still have significant opportunities for growth. I do want to highlight that um, you know we want to be careful with lumping URM together or UIM together as a category, uh, because when you look at you know individual groups, the Increase in UIM representation in pathology has been largely driven by Hispanic resident representation. So we're seeing increased numbers of Hispanic residents, but we're not seeing as many Black, um, and certainly not as many Native American residents. So we have to be really careful um, in making sure we're uh, adequately um, addressing all uh, UIM subgroups. Um, And certainly, once we hit the practicing pathologists and faculty levels, the faculty and practicing pathologists are disproportionately low um, so there are some real opportunities for growth there um, so i think those are the big takeaway takeaway points and i think the other takeaway point is that um, this serves as our ground truth for what we currently see and you know i think a lot of institutions are looking to implement diversity inclusion and equity initiatives at their own institution so i think that what we the data that we present should be used to um, guide implementation of such programs at individual institutions.
0: What aspects of this analysis did you guys find most like, most surprising?
3: Um, one of the things that was most surprising to me was just the lack of academic pathologists who are underrepresented in medicine. If you look at the numbers, there are fewer than 3% of our pathology faculty are considered black um, compared to 13% of the total American population. Um, And then it's a similar situation for Hispanic um, and Native American populations um, of practicing pathologists versus the U.S. population. And it's something that um, at times it can almost seem like an uphill battle um, because you, you want to show how much your program values diversity and how much you, how much this is a needed force. But when you have so few people of um, under who are underrepresented in medicine to help to um, drive these changes, it can be really difficult in terms of recruitment. Um, and like Marissa said, um, we. In terms of total uh, GME applicants, we aren't doing that poorly. However, we do have some room to grow, particularly in terms of um, black and African-American pathology applicants, uh, compared to those going into other specialties. And we do, um, it is known that uh, applicants underrepresented in medicine do tend to go toward the more visible, more primary care, direct patient care associated fields. So it's sort of been our delight and challenge to show uh, potential applicants that pathology really is a field that is at the forefront of medicine and that we are a very interactive field and we're very involved in patient care. Dr.
0: Gabel, can you talk a little bit about um, if these findings are specific to pathology or do we see them in other fields?
2: Yeah, so we definitely see them in other fields and that's exactly along the lines of was thinking in terms of the comments that were being made, you know, it becomes sort of this self-fulfilling kind of circle or cycle where, you know, you don't have the faculty, you don't have diverse faculty to make the case to diverse students. Um, And so um, it's like, you know, how do we break this cycle? Um, if you don't have the faculty there that are able to help attract and help paint a different story around um, the, these um, subspecialties. So, you know, the answer to answer the question, yes, there are, this is the type of trend that we do see in some uh, specialties where there's just a lack of um, diversity and there are some where you do see increasing with gender. So um, the story with um, medical oncology and radiation oncology actually follows this. For for medical oncology, you see that women have increased consistently about a percentage point per year for the past quarter century um, and, and are sort of close to parity or just at parity at the trainee level, at the fellow level. Um, but for um, uh, radiation oncology, you actually have a, a much slower increase um, in terms of women Um, increasing only at about a a 0.3% per year over that same time period. And that's for both trainees and faculty. Um, On the other hand, when you look at um, race and ethnicity, when you look at blacks and and Hispanics and and Native Americans in those fields, the lines are kind of flat over time and there's really not much change. And so um, there is um, this sort of differing trend where you can see that uh, women have increased in, in one specialty Um, and to a less extent um, in the other, but have done much better in a certain specialty. And I think it can help folks uh, begin to think about what might be the reasons behind that at a specialty level that what might be attracting one demographic group may not be uh, uh, attracting another demographic group. Um, The the story around gender is interesting when you look at different specialties. In some specialties, the male predominance of the field has… Been reported as a deterrent to training in that specialty. So there's a survey that looked at interventional radiology, um, and we did analysis of diversity in that field, and, and indeed reported that, that student trainees, when they were given an exposure experience and they were kind of surveyed afterwards, that women re- reported that the male predominance of the field was actually a, a, a deterrent to training. So I think some of the ways that we think about if we want to attract students into our fields, we need to actually be transparent. We need to acknowledge some of the past barriers. And certainly for racial and ethnic groups, the lack of ever having diversity um, isn't in is itself going to be a barrier. But I do think, you know, the, the, the good part is that just, you know, as was mentioned. You know we love our specialties we are happy to talk about what is what is what are the great aspects that have attracted us to our specialty um and really um, sometimes change a little bit of the narrative so when you look at racial and ethnic minorities medical students they often report um, what might have attracted them to medicine maybe things around uh, social justice and you know the opportunity to make a difference and so um, I can make those, I can tailor my conversation in radiation oncology to show them what are the ways that you ha- can influence health disparities, health policy, um, and really impact your community. There are certainly those opportunities within uh, pathology um, as well.
1: Can
0: uh, Can you help explain the concept of, of pipeline into medicine? And is that term uh, inherently biased?
1: Yeah, so I think that that last comment that you made um, about you know getting students interested and showing them how they can see a future in their in your specialty, um, doing what you know they're passionate about is so important. And I think that kind of touches on the pipeline, where you know you're you're looking at inspiring a young student and supporting them from you know elementary school through high school through college, and then helping them you know. Get accepted to medical school and then matriculate and actually graduate and then match into residency and then fellowship. So for you know for the pipeline to you know radiation oncology or pathology, it's very long and it doesn't just start with a medical student. It starts early and so you know for us that are actually trying to make a difference, you, ha- you really have to reach back and start early with high school students and elementary school students, uh, making sure that you you know show them that you, there is you there are. Faculty and doctors that look like them, and in, in different specialties, and that it is possible. Um, I think the 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 risk with you know thinking about this pipeline model is that um, you assume that everyone's pathway into medicine is linear. Um, so for you know individuals on residency selection review processes, you know you might see some gaps in someone's package and just assume that um, they had to take time off to get their scores up when the reality is that, you know, that individual might have had different or diverse life experiences, they may have had to work. You know, one of my classmates um, in medical school, she didn't come back to do medical school until she was about in her 40s um, because she was supporting and working with her family. Um, So, you know, we have to be really careful and um, mindful about what someone's pathway into medicine may look like. Not everyone's experience is the same, and it can be really easy to assume that, well, if you didn't, you know, go straight into medical school after college, That um, there was something different, you know, that there was something that was a problem. Um, We have to be really careful about that. Um, And for us, especially as pathologists, we have a lot of laboratory professionals that work with us, and that's an untapped resource. We have a lot of skilled laboratory professionals um, that may consider going back into. a college and apply to medical school, and they might do that you know, in, in mid-career, and that's totally fine. So when we think about the pipeline, we have to be really careful about um, you know, imagining a linear pathway into a uh, career. So one of the
0: big questions I, uh, I think that we're all kind of considering uh, throughout the industry is how pathology leadership can recruit and retain a diverse trainee and pathologist, physician, and laboratory professional workforce, um, can you guys speak a little bit about to Can you guys speak a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, I think so. Maybe uh, at least you might want to talk a little bit about you know your about your active outreach. So I think that's where it starts.
3: Yes, um, I agree. So. Um, We really have a need for early and meaningful exposure for students and really a long-term relationship with students. Um, So something that we've been doing at Hopkins um, is sort of a multifaceted approach. Um, So we have a funded rotation for students underrepresented in medicine, um, in which they can come to rotate with us, get an immersive experience in various fields of pathology, including surgical pathology, gynecologic pathology, hematopathology, also rotations through our clinical pathology labs, including micro, microbiology and clinical chemistry. Um, and we also have an aspect of this program where we, ha- we go out to schools that are, um, schools that historically have catered to groups underrepresented in medicine or Uh, student groups within majority schools um, who cater to um, groups underrepresented in medicine, so like the Student National Medical Association um, and Latin American Medical Student Association. Um, And we give a a presentation, typically uh, two or three of our faculty will give a presentation about what a career in pathology entails, how diverse a career in pathology can be, um, what drew us all to the field of pathology and why we love being pathologists, um, and all of the opportunities that lie ahead for our field. Um, So that's one way that we've had um, active outreach with medical students, um, and we have actually had a, a A few high school students come and rotate with us as well. Um, And then on the uh, laboratory technologist side, we also have a, we have outreach programs for technologists. Our our laboratory staff have a very active outreach program where they go out to local high schools here in Baltimore um, and give presentations. They have students come rotate through the labs. Um, we also recently established a histotechnologist training program in which um, our local community college um, has a histotech training program that is associated with Hopkins, and those trainees will then come um, do work with, work at Hopkins in, in an apprenticeship position, will then be hired on our staff, and hopefully we intend to retain those trainees. Um, as part of our workforce. Um, So we have found success in active outreach and pipeline programs, um, but it's that's something that we've found is very, very important and that allows us to have an ongoing relationship with these and mentorship with these students who are coming through our programs or who are coming into the fields of pathology. Um, One thing that we try to remember is that it's there, it's all about diversity, but also about inclusion and creating an inclusive environment once, um, once the students enter our field. Um, and so we have to have that ongoing support aspect um, of, our, um, of our relationship with these students and trainees.
1: Yeah, and I think I think along those lines, when we're looking at our education programs, we really have to look at how we are selecting the students that join these programs or the or the residents that are joining these programs. Um, so one thing that's been um, that's being advocated for now is called a holistic review process where you equitably assess applicant attributes and experiences. So you think about their socioeconomic status, their disability status, their different and varied life experiences um, and you know work experiences, research experiences. Um, and then you look at uh, their academics kind of in line with that. Um, and you equitably assess each of those parameters based off of that student's overall experience. Um, So for example, if you have a college student who has worked full time the entire year, you know, academic year, winter break, summer, and has managed a 3.0, that is, Equitable that that is equivalent to a student that has done no extracurricular activities at or you know probably even more um, than a student that has done no extracurricular activities and did a 3.5. So it really is looking at the entire package um, or the entire student and considering you know what their life experiences um, have been um, when we're looking at those metrics, those test scores um, that our students are you know that are. For the t- for the tests that the students take, we have to be mindful that um, there's a dif- growing body of literature suggesting that there may be bias in these traditional uh, academic metrics. Um, for our residents, um, there's you know some evidence that there may be bias in the USMLE exam uh, process, um, where individuals underrepresented in medicine uh, may not perform as highly, um, and it has has no correlation on their ability to be a good physician. Um, or, or, or to collaborate well with their professional colleagues. Same thing for MCAT scores, so looking earlier back for those students that get into medical school. Um, there's also some uh, suggestion that in some clerkship evaluations for medical schools uh, may be biased in terms of the, lang- the descriptive language that's used to describe uh, academic performance of students underrepresented in medicine. Um, so all these concepts of equitable assessment and being mindful of possible bias in traditional academic metrics can also be applied for um, for um, you know, labs for professional schools and certainly for job searches. Um, Dr. Hannah Valentine at the NIH has a really nice um, PowerPoint presentation uh, that highlights how you can uh, do a holistic um, search process uh, for laboratory professionals. Um, so really be mindful of um, the biases that can occur in the application process um, and being equitable in your assessment of students' experiences.
2: So I can definitely pick up from there as well. I mean, I think that that definitely highlights you know kind of a, the 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 from the ground up literally of how you can begin to you know recruit, create um, create a an environment that fosters diversity that is inclusive. I think that's a word that we had not used earlier um, in this conversation, but it's absolutely critical and important in that you can't sort of create diversity out of nowhere. And you can't kind of retain folks if you don't have an inclusive environment. And so that is, um, we're not talking about diversity or sort of diversity sake, kind of compositional diversity. We're actually talking about building an environment that welcomes, you know, fosters, kind of takes advantage, so leverages um, diversity um, to the, you know, the betterment of the, the, you know, the groups, the community, the, your individual um, kind of practice location, but also the community that you're serving. Um, So along those lines, I think, you know, it's critical that leadership plays a role um, in kind of setting the course. And so um, clearly the uh, Department of Pathology at Johns Hopkins has had a strong commitment from its leadership to enact and create these programs. um, And other departments should, you know, similarly enact um, these types of activities. They have sort of a blueprint of things that are already being done. Um, but also, just invest the resources, the, the human resources, the financial resources that it takes um, to build um, and, and foster um, a diverse workforce. Um, and so, similarly, at a societal level, you know, the, the society organizations um, similarly need to take a stance. Um, there's other examples from, you know, if we look at oncology, um, the ASCO, American Society of Clinical Oncology, as created a strategic plan for workforce of diversity, or workforce development um, in diversity, which they published a few years ago in the JCO, kind of a three-year plan, which is very clear, you know, transparent with mission, vision, goals, tactics. Things that speak very clearly to where we need to go and how can we get there. And they talked about these types of things pathway programs, providing resources, eliminating bias. We have bias people around us. We have bias in the selection process, as we pointed out. We have bias in the promotion process. And how, if we want to retain faculty, those few faculty that we do have, um, that we are looking at the work that they do in an equitable fashion. Um, Part of what we talk about often is um, this idea of the minority tax or or cultural taxation those minority faculty who um, are there are often tasked with doing the work of diversity or meeting with all the, you know, recruitment candidates or serving on every search committee, doing every community engagement activity, Um, and these are things that benefit the entire department. Um, in fact, I've, our colleagues at Hopkins have have published uh, that the term should actually be majority subsidy, as opposed to the minority tax, everyone else that's benefiting from the work that only a few may be actually doing. So, bringing everyone into the process, or and or also ensuring, you know, at the chair level, um, administrator level, that. Um, these activities are being valued and direct a compensation or they're also reflecting um, in their promotion for the the health.
0: So in terms of this analysis, what are the next steps?
2: I think some of the work that can be done um, is trying to identify what might be, you know, specific barriers to pathology. I mentioned some of the survey data um, in other fields that's been collected. There's often survey data that looks at, you know, interests and in specialty, but it doesn't necessarily look at it through the lens of of uh, diversity, and so are there specific demographics? What might speak to a specific demographic group, whether it's women, or black, or Hispanics, or what have been learned frankly, in the past, to not personal training, hurt from training? Um, and there are some examples out there in the literature um, the American College of Radiology did a national survey of providers looking at trying to assess some of these barriers and then creating a program around what are those specific barriers that also been Also, some and training for other programs who are motivated to look into and begin to expand their diversity, but don't know where to start talking about what are some High-level things that they you know, perhaps not but what are some of the things that they implement that might um, is a place to start um, because we do know that diversity has to be in what's that's going to happen, and so it has to be uh, a robust program that thinks thoughtfully about short-term and long-term goals and metrics over time, and that is very so um, you know, I'll call it present field. Programs are not, are not, not sustainable and they're not gonna be used along the way that we need to actually to achieve diversity.
3: I think that's a great response. And uh, we also need to consider our trainees um going forward into pathology because they really are the future of our field. Um and Like um, Marissa and Kurt were mentioning earlier, we need to consider that a a UIM trainee might have a different experience. Um, We need to think about how this experience is built upon starting at an earlier age, so starting from earlier on in medical school. Another thing that we can do is look at our long-term trends of UIM applicants and trainees and pathology, um, see where we're going, where we've been in the recent future, um, and consider ways, like Marissa was mentioning, that we can uh, perform a more holistic review of applicants in order to really bolster our UIM, um, UIM resident workforce.
1: I think another important aspect that we need to like look at critically, and I think um, ASCP, um, the Diversity, and Inclusion, Committee, might be looking at this, but um, more broadly assessing our laboratory professional workforce um, and identifying where we, as um, pathologists and as uh, as a professional society, as a professional um, group, can help support our laboratory professionals in advance in their careers. Um, you know, identifying our uh, laboratory technicians who might want opportunities for um, advancement of education, um, looking at diversifying our pathologist assistant workforce um, with, again, establishing a ground truth of where we are and where we need to go. Um, so for me, I think um, looking at our broader uh, laboratory professional workforce is important. I mean, we have a pipeline right before our eyes, for lack of better words. Um, when, we, when we're thinking about declining U.S. medical student interest in pathology, um, we have um, numerous labs or professionals that would be wonderful pathologists in addition to uh, the pathologist workforce. So I think that's an area where uh, we could look more t- uh, more deeply into.
0: Well, thanks so much, you guys, you. for taking the time to um, talk about your study, talk a little bit about diversity and inclusion. in. The pathology and laboratory workforces um i think obviously your research is very necessary and i'm really looking forward to seeing uh where we go from here so thanks again for joining us
1: thanks so much for having us Thank thank you